through 13. Genesis chapter 20, 1 through 13. And the Bible says, For there Abraham journeyed towards the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shuar, and he sojourned in Jair. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, See, is my sis- she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Jawar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What do you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, through not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Does that story sound familiar to you? I mean, didn't we go through this already once with Abraham? In fact, you can go back just to December 15th. That evening as we were engaged in this series, we studied the second half of Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham did this exact same thing back in Egypt. In fact, as I was preparing tonight's lesson, I was really contemplating whether or not to do chapter 20, because it's a repeat of chapter 12. Abraham's in Egypt in Genesis chapter 12. He goes there because there's a famine in the land of Canaan, And when he arrives there, his one big concern is that his wife will be so wanted by the men of Egypt that they would kill him to take her. And so he comes up with a plan that she's going to say that he's her brother, and he's going to say that she's her sister, and that way nobody will want to kill him to obtain her. Now here we are. Something like 20 years later. And Abraham is now in Gerar, area of the Philistines, part of the larger body of Canaan. And he's afraid. He's afraid that the men will once again 
want to kill him to obtain her. Now, we have to admit something. Sarah must have been really attractive because in both situations, somebody did take her. So props to Sarah. I mean, this is a woman that people wanted to be with, wanted to have in their family, wanted to marry. That means there's something substantial about Sarah that, that probably goes unnoticed. There, there is something special about that woman. And Abraham knew it. There might be a lesson there for us as husbands to esteem our wives in the same way. But that's a, that's a side sermon, so we're not going down that road. But think about this. Same situation, but different location. And in his fear, he negotiates with Sarah to communicate to these people in Gerar that she's just a sibling. You know, when it happened in Egypt, plagues came on the house of Pharaoh. When it happened here, in Gerar, a curse came on the house of Abimelech. You can read in a part of the passage we didn't cover tonight, if you go down to the very end of it, the last two verses of Genesis 20, you'll find out that every woman in his household was barren, was unable to conceive of a child during that time that Sarah was present in his household. In both instances, Abraham failed to be a blessing on the people that he was among. Instead, he was a curse. And this incident in Genesis chapter 20 is fascinating because we've watched this upward momentum, this progression of Abraham's faith through all of these events in his life, and Genesis chapter 20 is the ultimate regression. For some reason, we have this episode in the midst of Abraham's life, as he's overcome all of these different obstacles and his faith has grown through these different circumstances that at times were his own fault. But now he's taking steps backwards. But what we have to notice here in Genesis chapter 20, as Abraham commits the exact same sin he committed eight chapters earlier, we have to admit that Abraham is a repeat offender. And the truth is, you and I are as well. See, I imagine that for every one of us in here tonight, there is something, there is some sin, some temptation, some struggle that we just can't seem to put behind us. Something in the spiritual realm that we continue to mess up on. That we continue to mess up on. Some area in which we continue to fail to do God's will the way we ought. And I imagine, at least for a great many of us, that sin repeats itself over and over again. That temptation surfaces over and over again. That struggle arises over and over again. And right now, you might have in your mind that one thing that you just can't seem to overcome. That one thing that you can't seem to beat. That one thing that you can't seem to put behind you and to bury once and for all. Because just like Abraham, we're repeat offenders. And just like Abraham, we become very good at defending our repeated offenses. First thing I want you to notice tonight as we take a look at this episode in the life of the first follower. First thing I want you to notice is how Abraham defended his repeat offense. He utilized tactics 
Like we talked about last week when we discussed pride and, and rationalizing our sin, he utilized similar tactics. The first thing I want you to notice is that Abraham defended or justified his repeat offense by appealing to situational ethics. Look at what he said in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 11. He indicated that one reason he committed this sin is because there is no fear of God at all in this place. He reasoned that the people of Gerar, they must be as bad as the people of Sodom, the people of Gomorrah, maybe the people of Egypt. And they don't respect God. They don't abide by his standards. They're evil and wicked and unrighteous. And therefore, he opted for situational ethics. He decided that circumstances dictated one's value system. And in this particular place, he decided that he had to lie in order to survive. So Abraham indicated that the situation that he found himself in here gave him license to repeat his offense. And unfortunately, followers still do that today, don't we? There are times where we, where, that we conclude that the situation we're in, the circumstances we're facing, give us permission to sin, give us permission to regress. Let me give you an example that's not as drastic of a situation as Abraham's. But have you ever been just down and sad and upset about something so you gave yourself permission to go use money that you shouldn't be using? In other words, have you ever been so upset about something that you just went and bought yourself something to make yourself feel better? What I'm talking about is a situation in which we decide that it's okay to go spend this money we weren't planning to spend to make ourselves feel better. That's situational ethics. Maybe you do the same thing with food. Maybe you're feeling a little bit depressed and down, and, and to make yourself feel better, let's go to Cheesecake Factory and get us one of those cheesecakes, because guess what? That'll make me feel better, at least for now. Now, those are two very minor examples. You can amplify that and multiply that and see where that goes. We practice situational ethics. We decide in the moment that it's okay to do this because of what we're going through right now. That's where Abraham found himself. That's how he defended his repeat offense. But he also defended his repeat offense by altering the perspective of it. Look at what he said in verse 12 of Genesis 20. He indicated that another reason he claimed that Sarah was his, his sister is because she is indeed his sister. Abraham is saying, whether or not I sin just depends on how you look at it. Technically, I told the truth because she really is my half-sister. Have you ever used that technically? Technically, I was right. Technically, I wasn't wrong. Technically, it was okay. Technically, I didn't do that. Technically, we throw that out there sometimes to defend ourselves, to protect ourselves. That technically, it's all right. And what Abraham is doing here is he's saying that technically, I didn't sin. Technically, I told the truth. And much sin is excused by shifting the frame of reference. Instead of calling it an abomination, let's just call it an alternative lifestyle. Instead of acknowledging that God hates divorce, some people say, God wants me to be happy. Instead of saying that so-and-so sinned, we say that they make a mistake. We have a way of changing the terminology to alter the perspective so it's not as bad as it seems. See, we're not any different than Abraham. We'll defend our repeat offenses just like him. 
So Abraham said the situation demanded him to do this. And Abraham said that, that it's really just a matter of perspective, but he had one more thing to say to defend himself. And Abraham defended his repeat offense by assigning blame to another. Did you notice that in verse 13? He said, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, and then went on to, to say that he decided to lie about his relationship with Sarah, when God caused him to leave his father's house. In a roundabout way, he's saying that the reason he had to come up with this lie, with this, with this uh, deception, is because God made him leave the safety and security of his family. So he's implicating God as the, the one to blame for this sin. That's pretty bold, isn't it? God, it's your fault I'm in this situation. If you hadn't made me leave Ur, if you hadn't made me leave Haran, if you hadn't made me leave my father's house, I wouldn't have to do this to protect myself. Yet, just like Abraham, we're, we're quite capable of being a repeat offender who blames God. God, if I didn't have to go through this. God, if you hadn't brought that person into my life. God, if that hadn't happened to so-and-so. If, if I didn't receive this diagnosis, if, it's, if I didn't lose that person, if this or that or whatever. God, if that hadn't happened, if you had protected me, if you had been there, if you had answered my prayer, you can go on and on. And we can, just like Abraham, spin the blame so that it falls on God. And so Abraham here is a repeat offender who's trying to defend the reason that he repeated his offense. He's able to justify this offense in his own eyes, but he was not able to prevent his repeat offense from producing negative consequences. And when we look here at this story, I want you to notice three specific consequences that come, out, come about as a result of his repeat offense. Because one thing we need to realize is that sin always has consequences. In the context of Abraham's story, Abraham's repeat offense endangered the covenant. Now here's what I mean. Do you know what God had been promising Abraham this whole time? The big promise that has been unfulfilled at this point is an heir, is a child, more specifically a son. Now here's the thing, we're in the midst of Genesis chapter 20. Genesis 19, we didn't cover that, that's Sodom and Gomorrah, that's more focused on Lot, so I, I really skipped Genesis chapter 19. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 18, do you remember what happens in Genesis chapter 18? God shows up at Abraham's tent, and God says, this time next year, Sarah will bear you a son, and his name will be Isaac. He gave a timetable this time next year. Now, I'm not trying to split hairs or anything, but when we talk about a year, how many months is that? That's, that's 12 months. Assuming that that's to be taken literally here, that's 12 months. Now, we all know that from conception to birth, it takes approximately nine months for a child to be born. Genesis 18, the promise is that in 12 months, I will return and you will have a son. And then Genesis chapter 20, here's Abraham and Sarah in Philistine territory 
And Abraham is allowing his wife, who during this time should at the very least be conceiving the child that's supposed to be coming to them, and he surrenders her to the home of another man who takes her to be an additional wife. Now, as the story goes, God obviously protected her in this moment. But think about this for a minute. Sarah is in the home of another man during the time that she's supposed to be conceiving or during the time possibly even that she is already pregnant. What kind of rumors do you think would start if she remained in that household throughout the pregnancy? Do you think people would conclude that the hundred-year-old guy was the father? Abraham, by lying here, risked the covenant because during the time frame that he and Sarah are supposed to be conceiving this child, he's allowing her to be in the home of another man because of his lie. I'm sure there was great disappointment on God's part. And I also think that's why God took a very active role in resolving this situation. Because God appears in a dream to Abimelech and, and, and says, hey, I, I know you're innocent of this, but you better not do anything. You better give her back. Because if you don't give her back, there will be consequences for you. And think about this. If you really pay attention to the last couple of verses of Genesis chapter 18, uh, Genesis 20, verse 17 and 18, during the time that Sarah's in Abimelech's home, none of the women are able to conceive. It makes me wonder how long she's in that home. Enough time has to pass for them to be able to tell that there's a problem, either with Abimelech, because he has to be healed, or with the women that are, that are in his household who are not becoming pregnant. So some significant time has to pass. I don't know how much. But the timing chronologically of when this took place risks the covenant, risks the heir, risks the child, that's supposed to be born in 12 months' time from Genesis chapter 18. That's the first consequence. Thankfully, God intervened to prevent that consequence from coming to fruition. But then Abraham's repeat offense also had another consequence. It, it influenced Abimelech towards sin. Now, God prevented Abimelech from sinning, but Abraham's duplicity put Abimelech in a compromising position. When Abraham, uh, excuse me, when Abimelech took Sarah into his home, he did not know that she was married. Had God not been there to intervene, Abimelech would have innocently committed adultery. He would have engaged in a sinful relationship because he believed Abraham's word. You know, one of Satan's greatest lies, I believe, is to tell us that our sin won't hurt anybody else. That if you do this, don't worry. You're only hurting yourself. Nobody else is going to be hurt. But yet, time and time again, Scripture makes it very clear that the consequences of our sin can be far-reaching and can impact more than we realize. 
And Abraham has bought into that belief that, that his sin, his, his error here, his decision is not going to affect anybody else, but it very nearly cost Abimelech his life. Because as God spoke to him in that dream, he said, return her or else you'll die. And as I mentioned earlier, Abraham was called by God to be a blessing to nations and to people, but here he's a curse to Abimelech because he almost, he almost leads Abimelech into sin by sinning himself. And so Abraham endangers the covenant, and, and Abraham influences Abimelech to potentially sin. But I believe Abraham also taught his son Isaac to sin through this episode. Because you just have to go, to, go six chapters and in more into Genesis, to Genesis chapter 26, and a fascinating thing happens. The promised son who's born one chapter after the whole Abimelech episode, that son grows up, gets married. He travels to live in Philistine territory. And he tells their people that his wife, Rebecca, is his sister. Coincidence? I'm not certain that's a coincidence. It may be a learned behavior. Because one thing I didn't emphasize back in Genesis chapter 20 is that Abraham apparently used this strategy of deceit everywhere he went. Look at Genesis 20 and verse 13. As he's speaking to Abimelech, Abraham said that he instructed Sarah to claim that they are simply brother and sister at every place to which we come. We know of two instances, but is it possible that they did this more than that? That they lied about their relationship more than just two times at every place they come? I wonder if Isaac heard the stories about his dad's lying to protect himself. If at some point in his life he witnessed it. And if he didn't learn this behavior from his dad. Because one thing that's very interesting about these patriarchal families in, in Genesis is that they tend to repeat each other's mistakes. Isaac's going to teach his children about favoritism, and he's going to favor Esau, and, and Rebecca's going to favor Jacob. And the next thing you know, when Jacob has kids, guess what he's doing? He's picking a favorite kid too named Joseph. For some reason, you look at these families and the mistakes of one generation show up in the next generation as if it's learned, as if the bad example is passed down. And so I think one of the consequences of Abraham's decision here is that it taught his son to sin as well. And it was a consequence I don't think Abraham ever expected. See, tonight we look at Abraham's repeat offense, and, and here's what we see. We see a guy who defends it, and we see a guy who's not thinking about the consequences of it. But there's something bigger to this story that we can't miss. We need to notice what this teaches us about following. And the first thing this story teaches us about following is that relapse is possible. Let me explain what I mean when I say relapse is possible. Abraham's repeat offense 
reminds us of what one preacher said. He said, sin has no expiration date, and no believer becomes immune to the old nature's pull. In other words, even though our old self may be crucified with Christ so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, sin has this uncanny ability of finding its way back into our lives. What I mean is that there are times where we may think we've defeated this temptation or this sin, and somewhere down the road it shows back up. And we weren't expecting it, and we weren't necessarily wanting it, but the, the Satan, Satan knows how to attack. That's why he's said to have schemes, plural. And he has the ability to tempt us in ways we're not anticipating. He has the ability to remind us of sin that once lived in our life and to lure us back into that. Think about how many biblical heroes grappled with the same sin over and over again. For Moses, it was anger. It showed up when he was a young man and he, and he, and he killed that Egyptian. It showed up again when he was out there leading the Israelites and he struck a rock. For Samson, it was lust. Time and time again, Samson got himself in trouble because he was pursuing the wrong woman. For Peter, maybe we could say it was people-pleasing. Whether he was standing by a fire during Jesus' trial and a servant accused him of being one of Jesus' disciples, or he was dining with Gentile Christians, when Jewish Christians showed up, Peter had a tendency to try to please people. And it often got him in trouble. You can journey throughout Scripture and you can find different biblical heroes that struggled with something over and over again. Maybe you can even think of Gideon struggling with doubt. Maybe you can think about David struggling with entitlement. And like most of these biblical heroes, we struggle at times too to relapse into a sin and to, to, to give into a temptation that we once overcame. And all too often, we've learned how to rationalize it and we've learned how to defend it and we've learned how to live with it when we should be confessing it and escaping it. You remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13? No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 that God's going to always provide a way out of temptation. But you know what Paul says in the verse immediately before that? Chapter 10, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians. He says this, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, I think Paul is saying that we need to be careful because relapse is possible. We can find ourselves returning to sin again. That's why we need the armor of God. That's why we need the support of brothers and sisters that we can confess our sins to and hold each other accountable. That's why we need a support system unlike any other. 
And that's why we need a God who is gracious. And that brings us to the other thing this story reveals to us. That grace is greater. Abram's repeat offense reminds us that grace is greater. What I mean is that Abraham received grace back in Egypt. When he lied about his relationship with Sarah because he feared for his safety, he received grace then. And 20 years later, when he does the exact same thing with Abimelech, he received grace again. And it goes to show the unconditional nature of God's covenant with Abraham, a covenant that was not based on merit of Abraham, but on the grace of God. And this is a reminder to us of what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. He said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think what Paul's getting at is that not only is sin something into which we can relapse, but grace, grace is repeatable and grace is renewable. But Paul had a caution. To make sure that we don't see in God's grace a license to sin, Paul added this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 2. He said, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? In other words, Paul is saying that the very fact that God extends his grace to us should cause us to want to stop relapsing into sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. But that doesn't mean we should test its limits. We need to be cautious and weary of the fact that we can fall and that we can fall again. But we also need to give glory because we have a Father who loves us so much that he gave us a means to receive grace. Tonight, you have the opportunity to receive that grace. And you receive that grace by coming in contact with the blood of Jesus that, that cleanses you from all sin. But the only way to come in contact with the blood of Jesus is through the waters of baptism. Tonight, you may be in a position where you need to confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. You may need to repent of your sins, and you may need to be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. But it also may be a night where you look at yourself as someone who became a child of God, but you've relapsed, and it's time to make correction. See, tonight we gather here to offer this invitation so that you can make your life right with God in whatever capacity it might need to be. And so we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.